following is a sermon preached at Grace Church of Orange, California. Join us now as we go verse by verse through God's inspired, inerrant, infallible Word. Well, it is always appropriate to give credit where it is due, right? You want to honor a chef for a delicious meal. You want to commend an artist for a beautiful work of art. You want to thank someone for a gift they give you. Uh, You want to appreciate a good deed done. You want to express gratitude for some benefit you have received. You want to give appropriate praise. And so it is right that Paul ends Romans with a doxology, a praise to God on whom the whole gospel and the plan of salvation rests. So I want to invite you to find Romans chapter 16 in your Bibles and please stand with me. And I'm going to read verses 25 to 27. The last three verses in Romans, this is the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. I say that every week. It's it's powerful. It's authoritative. It's from God. Uh, We stand in honor of God and his word. And please hear the word now. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, According to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. And Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray you would have your way in our hearts today, all for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I would not want to imagine a world without the book of Romans in it. A world without its glorious truths glittering like diamonds without the explanation of what God has done and revealed and is doing in Christ, without the effects of God's answer to man's depravity in the gospel, because that world without the message of the gospel would literally be a hell on earth. 20th century Welsh preacher D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that Romans is one of the brightest gems of all In the whole of the scriptures, the brightest and most lustrous and flashing stone or collection of stones is this epistle to the Romans. Romans unearths some great truths. What God has done in loving us and sending his son. What God has revealed in his written word. What God is doing transforming lives by the gospel of Christ. And we've seen this as we've gone through Romans. Romans is not for people in ivory towers or living in glass houses. Romans is for everyday people who desire to please God and know that they fail daily. People who want to follow Jesus. People who want to know God more. People who are awestruck at God's awesome gospel glory, which he has revealed in his word. And for the past two plus years, we've been going through Romans, and we have seen God's glory. We have seen God's greatness. We have seen God's power toward us who believe. And you just take just a 
a quick walk through Romans and you see this. In chapter 1, it started off with man's downward cycle of sinful depravity and the lostness of mankind. But chapter 2 revealed God's righteous and holy judgment against man's sin. And then you get to chapter 3 and here's God's righteousness being revealed through faith in Christ. Chapter 4 continues it on that we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. Chapter 5 showed us that those that are justified by faith in Christ have peace with God. They had death in Adam, now they have life in Christ. Chapter 6 then says, you know, you're dead to sin, believers. You're alive to God in Christ. You were slaves to sin, now you're slaves to righteousness. And then chapter 7, that battle that every Christian goes through, the battle with sin within, while, while we are being saved, while we are being sanctified, it's the struggle, the daily struggle with sin. You get to chapter 8, and you know, the artwork we chose for this, this series had three mountain peaks, and Romans 8 is one of those big mountain peaks for people, and it explains to us what life in the Spirit really is. What does it mean to be adopted by God into his family? What is the future glory that we're looking forward to? And then it ends with this everlasting love of God that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What confidence that builds within the hearts of every believer. We got into some swift moving waters in chapters 9, 10, and 11. God's sovereign choosing in election in chapter 9. Chapter 10, mankind's responsibility, Israel's unbelief and the gospel to all the nations. Chapter 11, Israel's future restoration promised. And then you get into the last chapters in Romans, 12 through 16, and it's, it's very practical. 12 starts it off that all who trust Christ's sacrifice for sin fully yield themselves to him. And you notice that that process just keeps going on and on, that you you maybe take some steps backwards sometimes in your growth or in your obedience, and then God recalibrates your heart toward him, and, and you continue to give yourself fully to Christ. Chapter 13 spoke of submitting to God-ordained authorities. Chapter 14, so practical for us, don't cause your brother to stumble, don't judge your brother. Chapter 15 gave this picture of a unified church in gospel partnership in harmony, presenting Christ to the nations, Christ the hope of the world. And then we got to chapter 16, and beautiful picture of real people serving Jesus, changed people serving Christ, who are avoiding divisiveness, avoiding divisive people, and now, at the very end, giving all the glory to God, glorifying God above all. This is the this is the, the, the point uh, that, that this passage is making to us today. And, and we know that we need to glorify God above all. Because Romans is about the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel through faith in Christ. Those who believe the gospel, they rejoice in the gospel. They, they rest in that gospel truth. And, and those who believe the gospel, they just want to live the gospel. The gospel is not about you know, how to have your best life now. 
The gospel is not about fulfilling your dreams. The gospel is not five easy steps to get what you want. The gospel is about God providing what we need. Bringing life and immortality to light through the gospel. And what a Christian notices as, as you go on with Christ is that you're actually unashamed of the gospel. That's what Paul started out by saying. I'm unashamed of the gospel of Christ. Because it's God's gospel. And he saved you by it. And so you can go into your office tomorrow morning. And you can go into your neighborhood this afternoon. You can go into your classroom tomorrow. You can go into anywhere God sends you and not be afraid and not be wondering if the gospel's not strong because you know that God saved your soul by the gospel. The message of Jesus Christ crucified and risen and coming again. So you're unashamed of the gospel. And then the believer realizes all the sins I've committed, they are forgiven in Christ. All the sins that haunt me at times, all, all the things I wished I hadn't done, I'm uncondemned. I'm uncondemned. People might point me out and say, you know, we don't like what you did or we're going to really stick it to you, but God isn't going to do that to the Christian. He's not going to you know, pull out some evidence at the 11th hour and, and say, you can't get into heaven. Because every sin that you've ever committed and every sin that you will commit was put on Jesus Christ at the cross. He took our place. He, he died our death. And every Christian realizes that. I'm, I'm uncondemned. And then we go through life realizing how hard it is not to be conformed to the world. The battle of Romans 7 rages and we're not to be conformed to the world, but it's so easy, isn't it? And we kind of ebb and flow and go back and forth, and God in his, in his grace and his kindness keeps bringing us back. And he does so by the powerful word that works in us who believe. The powerful word, rightly handled, accurately interpreted. You don't want false things about God. You don't want uh, confusing doctrines that twist the scriptures. You want to know, what did God say? And what did God mean by what he said so clearly? And we've seen all of this in Romans. You come to the end of this beautiful letter, and it, it really does mark an end of another chapter in our life together as a church. I mean, if you think about just in the last two plus years, people have been born, a lot of kids have been born at Grace, but people have died as well. People have moved. People have come to be a part of this fellowship. And, and so I, I don't really want us to think of finishing a Bible book as, well, we're going to you know, check off the box. Well, there's another book in the books. I don't want to think of it as, well, we just gained a bunch of knowledge. What I want you to do is think of it as, as a, a commencement. You know, you go to a graduation, and there's a commencement ceremony. You know what that means for all those that are graduating? Their life is now starting from this point on. This is now not just an end of a book. This is a beginning, really, as we anticipate what God will do in us and through us for his glory as we take Romans and say, now let's live this. We're not going to set it aside. We're not going to forget about it. We're, we're going to live what God has shown us in the word. For his greatest glory, what will he do? And so Romans ends in the most beautiful way with a doxology that praises God for his work 
in Christ. Last three verses is all about giving all the glory to God. It's all about that. It's all about giving all the glory to God. And you can put it this way. If you want to know the, the point of this passage, four words. God deserves all glory. God deserves all glory. And then you can explain that a little bit more and put it this way. God, all powerful to save and all wise to reveal it in his written word deserves all glory. God, all powerful to save. God, all wise to reveal it in his written word deserves all glory. Steve Lawson said, to know Christ is life's greatest joy. To follow Christ is our greatest pursuit. To glorify Christ is our greatest goal. To glorify Christ is the greatest goal of every Christian. And the dominant theme in this passage is glory to God. We read these words so often in Scripture, do we not? To God be the glory. And and when we read these words in Scripture, to God be the glory, how does it usually get capped off? It's to God be the glory... Amen. To God be the glory. Amen. Whatever else you said, I'm sure that's right too. You got a verse for that. But I'm thinking amen. I got some examples I'll show you right now. In fact, you can help me with it, okay? I'll do the first part. You do the last part, okay? Here we go. Now, oh, by the way, it's followed by amen. You know why? Because amen means I'm confident in God. I'm content in him. So Romans 11, 33 to 36, we started the, the service off with those verses. So verse 33 says, oh, the depths. I love this. Paul's heart just is just full of the glory of God. And he says, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How, how inscrutable his ways. And he's saying, God has no counselor. Nobody counsels God and tells him what to do. He goes on to say, God has no creditor. God's not going to owe someone for what they did for him. And then verse 36, for from him, you can help me here now, from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever, amen. Amen. Now, Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think, according to the power at work in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Hebrews 13, 21. The God of peace through Jesus Christ. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then Jude 25. We'll do one more. This is kind of fun. Jude 25. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now. So before all time, before we showed up on the scene, Right now, in this moment, and forever, amen. Amen. And, and these three verses we're looking at today, they just go right along in that, in that string of praises to God. You see it all the time in Scripture. It's appropriate. I'm going to call this a beautiful string of praiseworthy truths that we see in this passage. A beautiful string of praiseworthy truths regarding God's actions in the gospel, regarding what God does. And, and what, they, what these things do is they combine to give God glory. They, they combine to give God all the glory. A, a string of five 
praiseworthy truth that, that Paul is bringing out here right at the end that, that just dovetails in to everything we've seen in Romans. So here's the first truth. It's in verse 25. First truth. God is strong enough to establish believers, making them believers and keeping them believers to the end. God is strong enough to establish believers, making them believers and keeping them believers to the end. Verse 25 starts with this word, now. Like many of these doxologies do. It starts a long sentence that forms the ending doxology. Now, it's not unusual for Paul to end a paragraph like that or even a long section, a major section of one of his letters. This is the only one of Paul's letters that ends in a doxology. And it's a long doxology. It's beautiful. He says, now to him who is able, powerful, to strengthen you, make you stable, establish you, make firm. What does that mean that he's able to strengthen you? It, the strengthen or establish here literally means to save completely. To save completely, as the Bible says, to save to the uttermost, the one who has faith in Christ. It points to what we've seen in Romans all the way through, from the outset all the way through. He begins Romans by talking to those, addressing those who have been called to belong to Jesus Christ. In chapter 8, we see that those who have been called to belong to Jesus Christ have been glorified. Literally, they're not there yet, they're not in heaven yet, but it's a guaranteed glorification. We see at the end of Romans 8 that nothing can separate the believer from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We see in chapter 9 that we're chosen by God of his own free will. And isn't God's grace amazing? Yes? Well, tell me, do you think God's grace is amazing? Well, then let me know it. When I'm asking you like a simple question, I mean, come on. Isn't God's grace amazing? Thank you. No, seriously, it's amazing. He decided what he was going to do, and he decreed for it to happen. He, de he de decided and decreed our rescue when? Before the foundation of the world. Before you were born. Before you did anything. Before there was any track record that God could evaluate you on. You were chosen by grace. If you're a believer, that's true about you. You were chosen to be the recipient of mercy. In grace, God gives you what you don't deserve. And in mercy, he holds back what you do deserve. You don't get the wrath of God. You get forgiveness in Christ instead. You and I could never come up with a plan like that. Salvation is about God's gracious choice. And it humbles us. Believers don't walk around saying, you know, God's lucky he chose me. In fact, God's lucky that I'm in the church. I mean, look at me. People don't do that. Believers don't do that. You are humbled by God's grace. You are humbled by God's mercy. It makes you confident in Christ, not yourself. It makes you confident in who Jesus is. And you believe, as Romans told us, because God predestined you and called you and justified you and even as good as glorified you. No doctrine is so humbling to our pride as God's sovereign election and mercy. To know that being included in the family of God has nothing to do with my will or my work. 
being included in the family of God is not because of your birth, or because of your schooling, or because of your goodness, or because of your actions, or because of your merit, or because of your knowledge, but it's all by the free will and love of God in Christ. We sing this truth. We sing that we are debtors to grace alone. We should be amazed that there are any Christians at all. We should be amazed that there are any Christians at all, let alone that we would be chosen. Because God's mercy overflows to unlikely people like us. He says, to him who is able to strengthen you. Now, if you read the Bible like I read the Bible, you think, wow, God is able to save me. But we read it wrong. It's he's able to save us. You here is in the plural. He's writing to the church. He's writing to a church of Jews and Gentiles who are just getting to know each other at this point, just becoming familiar with one another, just getting used to being in the same room with one another. And he's saying he's able to strengthen you. Plural. Church. Different people from different backgrounds, from different cultures, put together to be a harmonious body who moves out in unity with the gospel. Paul was writing to the church in Rome about A.D. 57 during his third missionary journey, most likely from Corinth, Greece. He's writing to a church of newer Christians, of Jews and Gentiles. And literally, they're getting used to each other here. They're not used to being in the same room, let alone being in the same family and calling each other brothers and sisters. The Roman Christians, they needed needed strengthening. They needed encouragement. And so do we. So do we. Paul wrote Romans to a group of persecuted Christians in need of strength and encouragement to persevere in the faith, not just because of suffering, but because of the theological confusion that surrounded them. So much like our day today, people with all sorts of ideas, and he's pointing them to the truth and saying, this is true, cling to it. He's telling them what you need most is to know and love and live the gospel. That's what we need most. We need to Know and love and live the gospel. It's what we need most. So Paul is praising God here. He's saying he's the only one that can empower the Romans and us to keep on going in Christ, to to remain faithful to the gospel. What Paul is saying here, quite simply, is Romans, you're in God's hands, not mine. God is strong, I am weak. My hands are just like yours. You're in God's hands where you belong. It's like what he said to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. He says to them, Now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace that's able to build you up and give you inheritance among those who are being sanctified. You're in God's hands. His hands are strong. God is strong enough to save us and make us believers and keep us believers to the end. Now to him who is able to strengthen you. That's the first truth. Second truth, still in verse 25. God does this by the gospel, his power to save. God does this by the gospel, his power to save. He says in verse 25, according to my gospel, 
He's praising God for his ability to save in agreement with the gospel. The gospel is a standard by which God will judge the world. The standard by which it's determined whether or not you are in the faith. He says, my gospel, which is really interesting for us to hear, right? It's a common way that Paul spoke, but we don't walk around going, hey, can I share my gospel with you? You know, we're like, can I share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ with you? Or can I share the gospel with you? But we don't usually say, my gospel. Why did he say that? It's because he was owning his part in the proclamation. He says, my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. So that's synonymous with gospel. What was Paul's supreme commitment? Preaching the gospel. He says, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. That should be our supreme commitment. As you're thinking about what you're doing next today in life, what you're thinking about what's going to happen tomorrow where you go to wherever realm God has given you to serve, his kingdom purposes, if you're a believer, you've got to think about bringing the gospel with you. You've got to think about living it and loving it and sharing it. Proclamation of Jesus as the Messiah is God's power to save. We saw it right away in Romans, Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation for all who believe. And then he throws out this zinger. To them it would have been a zinger. To the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Well, whoa, everyone's like, wait, you're going to bring us all together into one family? Yes. That's what God's going to do. And it's his power to save. And we like to look at that word and go, you know, the Greek word is dunamis, which is where we get our word dynamite from. And we kind of like to play on that word. And I've done it lots of times. And I'm thinking dynamite. But then I'm thinking dynamite. And I'm like, blowing things up? God, you know, is going to blow your life up? I don't know about that. Do I want that? Do I want my life blown up? God's power to save is the gospel. And by the way, you think of dynamite, you think, well, it just destroys, right? Well, it's also used for good purposes. So think of that way and go, there's a destructive and a constructive purpose. The gospel smashes our pride and builds our life. It's the power of God to save. It smashes your pride and builds your life upon the rock of Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel does. God is strong enough to make us believers and keep us believers to the end. He does this by the gospel, his power to save. And then the third truth, still in verse 25. Because of that, we preach Christ from all of Scripture to all nations. We preach Christ from all of Scripture to all nations. He says, according to the revelation, literally the unveiling. You go to a wedding, and, and there's this a lot of you know, pomp and circumstance and beauty and flowers. And, but all eyes are on the bride. And the bride comes down the aisle. And often she's wearing a veil. And, and, and the moment where, where the veil gets lifted, you're like, wow, what a beautiful bride. The groom is saying, what a beautiful bride. Praise God. Here, speaking of a revelation and unveiling of a mystery. A mystery. Now, in the New Testament, whenever you see this term, mystery, it's referring to something that was hidden in former times, but isn't hidden anymore, okay? It's not a mystery anymore. We know it. We have the whole scriptures. We know the mystery. It's not behind door number two over there or hidden behind some bush over there. No, it, it, it's, it's already uncovered. Every time that Paul mentions mystery in the New Testament, he's referring to something that has already been revealed. So you don't have to worry today like, what's the mystery? 
It's the gospel. It's the whole gospel story. It's all about Jesus. And it was kept secret for long ages. It was in a state or condition of silence. And people of God were waiting a long time to figure out what exactly this mystery was going to reveal. The revelation of the mystery, no one would have known it unless God had revealed it. The mystery kept silent for long ages was revealed after many generations of God's work amongst his people and and much expectation. And when the right moment arrived, Galatians 4.4 tells us, at the fullness of the time, God sent forth his son. In Hebrews 11, we have all these heroes of the faith that put their trust in the coming Messiah but never knew exactly how it was going to turn out. They just knew that God keeps his promises. That's why Hebrews 11 starts, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. They didn't see it. They saw it from afar, and they trusted God. It's like Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. He says in verse 26, though, it has now been disclosed. It has now been disclosed. It's, it's open. It's clear. The, the mystery was kept silent for a long time, And they didn't know exactly how it was going to be. They didn't know the name, Jesus. They didn't know all the particular details. They could patch it together at some point. But here's here's how Peter put it. Go to 1 Peter 1. It's now been disclosed. It's made clear. It's been made manifest. It's been revealed. The previously unknown elements of the gospel have now been revealed, not just to the Jews, but to all people by God's initiative in a way that shows the gospel to be consistent with the entire Bible. Well, if you go to 1 Peter 1, and we'll just read verses 10 through 12, it says this. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. All the, the, the things we know, the, the whole gospel message has been disclosed. He's describing this mystery. It was the object of the revelation that takes place in the open proclamation of Jesus Christ. It's in contrast to the long period of silence when God's purposes for salvation weren't fully known detail by detail. Now God has disclosed his purposes in the gospel. This is what Paul is saying. And he says, and it's through the prophetic writings, literally the scriptures of the prophets. It's the scriptures that the apostles preached In the book of Acts, when they were preaching the gospel, they were using the Old Testament to preach Christ. In John chapter 1, disciples of John come to him and say this, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote. Moses and the law and the prophets wrote of Christ. See, the gospel is in the Old Testament. Those prophetic voices were shadowy, they were unclear, Uh, their writers and their speakers were wondering where it all pointed, but we preach Christ crucified, revealed in the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
and the word of God. Don't let anyone ever tell you that we don't need the Old Testament. There's a pastor down in Georgia telling people you don't need the Old Testament. Not true. Everyone needs the Old Testament. Don't let anyone ever tell you you don't need the New Testament. Don't let anyone ever tell you you don't need the written word of God. Without the written word of God, we would not know the gospel. I was in India once, and I was teaching in the seminary for a few days. And I was teaching pastors who were, some of them were illiterate. And they were, they were preaching to people who couldn't read or write. And they're like, how are we going to do this? How are we going to take this home? And a seasoned missionary gave the simplest of answers. He said, you know what? They're going to, they're going to verbalize it. They're going to hear it. And they're going to speak it, and they're going to draw pictures until they can read and write. But the message that they're verbalizing, the message that they're writing down and even drawing pictures of, is from the written word of God. The written, living, abiding word of God. The means of the revelation takes place with the prophetic writings, he says. They're clearly revealed now through what is preached with their full meaning open to us in Christ. The scriptures are preached to us by the apostles. In fact, Romans is in that category as well. See, the gospel puts a floodlight on the saving purposes and saving righteousness of God. Go over to Romans 3. Look at Romans 3, what it said there. I remember when Romans 3, 21 to 24, just just hit my soul like a ton of bricks. I'd been a believer for about a year and a half, and I I was sitting in my room, in Downey, I had been in the hospital for three days with a brown recluse spider bite, and I couldn't go back to this missions thing I was doing until I had gotten better, and I was sitting in my room reading Romans 3. And this is, this is what happens. God, God just sometimes just in a moment opens your eyes to something you didn't see before. It can happen for you right now as I read this. Here, here's what it says. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The Old Testament bears witness to this righteousness, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Previously discerned only in types and shadows, now clearly made evident. Paul says it's been made known to all nations. 26, verse 26, it's been made known to all nations. What did God tell Israel? God says, I'm going to call you to righteousness. But not only that, I'm going to appoint you as a light to the nations. Isaiah 42, 6. So that every tribe and tongue and nation would hear. Think with me, here's an example. The book of Acts, chapter two. Who showed up? Who did God have in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost? Jews from all nations who heard the gospel in their own language. He preached Christ from all of scripture. Christ, uh, Charles Spurgeon said, preach Christ always and everywhere. He is the whole gospel. His person, his offices, and work must be our one great all-comprehending theme. By his written word, Christ is revealed 
in all his saving ways. God gave us the word of God. He orchestrated its writing over some 1,500 plus years. He oversaw its preservation and its gathering, its canonization. God has preserved his written word through every attack of sinful man throughout the ages. He's doing it now. He is preserving his word from any that would attack his written word. Isaiah says the word of God stands forever. It is by this word that we know the truth of our salvation. This is the word that was preached to us, Peter says. God is strong to save and to keep us saved. And God does this by the gospel, his power to save. And we preach Christ from all of scripture to all nations. Fourth truth. Still in verse 26. The preaching of Christ brings people to the obedience of faith. Notice with me, he says, according to the command of the eternal God, God commanded the proclamation to bring about the obedience of faith so that people would believe and obey him. I know that some people say, my favorite part of Romans is Romans 8, or my favorite part of Romans is Romans 9. I'll tell you, over this last two and a half years, the most moving aspect of Romans to me has really become what I've called the bookends in Romans. Romans chapter 1, verse 5. Romans 16, 26, where it, it says the obedience of faith, to bring the nations to obedience to faith, of faith. It, it sums up the idea that God saves us and so we obey. It parallels Jesus' words in John 15, verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I command you. First command is believe in Jesus. John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. 1 John 4, 19, we love him because he first loved us. And so chapter 1, verse 5 says, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. What is the obedience of faith? Why, is, why are those two bookends so important, not only to the gospel message, but to the glory of God? It's because the obedience of faith literally means you believe the gospel, you obey the gospel. You walk in the truths that have been revealed. You, it's faith that works. It's the obedience, literally it's the obedience that flows from faith. The obedience of faith. The, the obedience that flows from faith. One example here, Romans 16. Uh, excuse me, Romans 6, 16. He talks about being obedient slaves. And he says, you're, you're gonna be an obedient slave. You're gonna either be to sin leading to death, or, or, or of obedience leading to righteousness. In 1 Peter 1, verse 2, Peter says that we're saved according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. The purpose is for us to obey Jesus to the glory of God. So the obedience of faith is faith that obeys Jesus. This is like an obedient child obeys their, their, their parents, because they're loved and, and they know they're loved and so they love in return. In fact, many of you are caring for aging parents now. It's because you know you're loved and you know you're now called to minister to them in, in their old age and show love to them as they have showed love and continue to show love to you. In 1 Peter 1.14, it says, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires that you had when you lived in your ignorance. Put that all away. Put that ungodliness away. Spurgeon said, We're not saved by obedience. Obedience is the result of salvation. We're saved by faith because faith leads us to obey. 
It's the obedience that comes from faith and continues on. It's, it's rooted in the lordship of Christ. We saw it in Romans 14, which signifies his sovereign authority over our lives. We call Jesus Lord, it means he's sovereign over our lives. It demands our worshipful acknowledgement, but it delights in our, in our obedience, in our yielded obedience. So there is a very practical implication for us today as we think about this phrase, the obedience of faith. What, it, what it's telling us is that we must pursue sanctification, growth in Christ, growth in holiness, being set apart by God for his service. Hebrews says that we, we must pursue sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. If you're not growing in Christ, if you're not moving on in Christ and progressing, you're not gonna see the Lord, meaning you're not saved. Think about it. Romans told us very clearly we didn't make ourselves spiritually alive. Think of the day you were born. You didn't know about the day you were born until you became more aware of being alive. Maybe, I don't know, a year or two down the road. I don't remember when I realized I was alive and I was a person that got born on October 20th, 1962. But I'll tell you what, on October 20th, 1962, I didn't get to say, hey, I want to be born today and I want an innie, not an Audi. I didn't get that choice. I was just born and then a couple years later, whatever, I realized I existed and I'm like, you know, could express myself, and once that happened, whew, they called me Motormouth for a reason. My first grade teacher called me Motormouth. That was my nickname, I guess. We didn't make ourselves spiritually alive. First Peter 1.3 says God caused us to be born again to a living hope, and we don't keep ourselves spiritually alive. When you got justified by Jesus by, through faith in Christ, it required no work of yours, but sanctification? That requires your full engagement. This is where the, the cogs in the wheel, this is where the, the gears can't be slipping. Everything needs to be meshing on the daily where you are acknowledging God's presence, where you're acknowledging God's power in light of the gospel truth, where you say, I'm gonna live to the glory of God and I know I still sin, but God in his kindness, as Romans 2 tells us, leads us to repentance. And I might take two steps backwards and then uh, step forward but i'm moving on in christ and because of god's grace and kindness and mercy to me i will continue on see god in his wisdom designed it like this that we must be fully engaged you must be fully engaged and, and i'll put it this way it doesn't depend on you but it won't work without you your, your growth in christ does not depend on you but it won't work without you Every believer needs to be actively engaged in the process of growth in Christ, and there's no way around that. The Christian life, here's the Christian life. Trust Jesus and actively engage in the process of following Jesus. It doesn't just happen. Your life, your will must be engaged. You must want to pursue Christ. You must want to please Christ. And when you do that, when you live like that, you don't presume upon the grace of God. You live obediently. Your, your goal is to please God. And, and you know nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, your Lord. And, and even, even when your life seems like it's imploding, you go, well, God is at work in me to will and do his good pleasure. He who began a good work in me will continue it on until the day of Christ. 
The word of God is at work in me. What did Jesus say? My sheep hear my voice. Hebrews 4 tells us clearly the word is the voice. The voice is the word. By the living, we're born again by the living and abiding word of God, it says. And so here's what Paul has been getting at in these first two verses. He's praising God, who strengthens believers in accord with the true gospel of Jesus Christ in coordination with the full revelation of the mystery that God kept secret in ages past. And he correlates everything in Christ, fulfills the promises to Jew and Gentile. What we know, what has been known, become known in Christ, what is known by the scriptures of the Old Testament prophets, now it's all synchronized in Christ and is made known to all nations. You can illustrate it by the steps the gospel took in the book of Acts, Acts 1.8. It started in Jerusalem, it went to Judea, and then Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We're called to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those who hear are responsible for responding with obedience. If they don't, God takes care of that. We don't have to twist arms. You just share the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit. You trust God with the results. And what will, what will result is either the obedience of faith, where someone becomes a believer and continues on in Christ, or the disobedience of unbelief. And you can just measure your love for others by, you know, what kind of grief do I experience over their unbelief? And what lengths will I go to get the gospel to them? The gospel leads to obedience that faith expresses. Because God is strong to save us and to Make us believers and keep us believers to the end. God does this by the gospel, which is his power to save. So we preach Christ from all the scriptures to all nations. And the preaching of Christ brings people to the obedience of faith. And then one last truth, the fifth truth. It brings it all together. It brings it all together. When, when people all over the world, from every tribe and nation and, and tongue, Come to the obedience of faith. It brings all glory to God. It brings all glory to God. Paul says in verse 27, to the only wise God. Literally, God alone wise. God is, is true and everyone is a liar. Paul had described the gospel, now he's describing God. He praises the only God who, is, who alone is infinitely wise. And, and what happens at this moment and I don't know if Tertius was writing it or if Paul just said, give me the quill, I'm going to say this, I'm going to write this, but he is, his soul is gripped with a vision for the glory of God. His soul is full. He, he's been praising God for his power and his wisdom and, and his eternality, really, the eternal God, according to the command of the eternal God. And he says, to the only wise God, be glory. Is is. His heart is just gripped anew by the grace of God. He, he says he's the only wise God. It echoes Greek philosophy. Socrates told Phaedrus that even Lysias and Homer and Solon could not be called wise because you reserve that term only for God. And, and you're, you're seeing here the, the, the wisdom of God and the, the oneness of God and the display of God's power through the gospel, which again brings Jews and Gentiles together in one harmonious church at peace with him and one another, moving out with the gospel. If you think that you have trouble getting along with fellow Christians, can you imagine what it was like for Jews and Gentiles to call themselves brother and sister? 
it makes our challenge seem a little trivial. He's the only wise God. He knows what he's been doing from the beginning. Though many people misunderstand him, though many people malign or mangle what he has said, some people just recoil at the mention of the name of Jesus. God knows what he's doing. And he says, to God be glory. He's giving praise. What does it mean to give glory to God? It means praise God. It means attribute weightiness to him. Ascribe importance to him. Point out his ways and his works. Two examples. Luke 19, 37 and 38. A multitude of Christ's disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. And they said this, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They're expressing praise and glory to God. In Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. This is glory to Jesus, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. We know that God deserves all the glory. But how do you glorify God? Thomas Watson will help us here. He says, We glorify God when we're God admirers. When you admire something, you say good things about it, you, you think good thoughts, and you express them. So Watson said, admire God's attributes. They are the glistening beams by which the divine nature shines forth. To glorify God is to have God-admiring thoughts, to esteem him most excellent. And then he said this, and search for diamonds in this rock only. I love that picture. Search for diamonds in this rock only, in God alone. He says, glory to God forevermore, for all eternity, literally on and on, to the ages, through Jesus Christ. He's he's praising God, and to praise God, it, it has to be through Jesus Christ. We praise God only through means of Jesus Christ. If you're not a believer today, you can't leave and say, I'm going to go ahead and glorify God. The sermon was about glorifying God, but I'm not going to believe in Jesus. Then you cannot glorify God. Jesus made it very clear. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's exclusive, and the gospel is to be preached to all people. There aren't several ways to heaven. There aren't several ways to glorify God. Jesus Christ and him alone is the one through grace by which we have access to the Father. So he praises Jesus Christ. This is what a Christian does. You praise his sacrificial life. You praise his reconciling death. You praise his victorious resurrection. This is the center of the gospel. And then Paul ends with one word. He says, amen. We're back to amen. Remarkable word. Best known universal word. It expresses absolute trust and confidence in God. It's rooted in contentment. This is Paul's response to God. As the Holy Spirit's having him end this letter, this should be a signal for us to affirm our sentiment as well and say amen. It's how Romans ends. It's the idea of yielding all to God. It's the idea of pouring out your heart in praise to God. That you say God is worthy of all the praise that he's just been given and I'm gonna give him more and more and more praise. 
His power and his wisdom are good reasons to give him glory. Because you know what happens? The more you grasp what the word of God says about God and his purposes, the more it becomes part of your prayers. And, and you're, you're speaking uh, good things, admiring God. When people from all over the world bow before God's king, the Lord Jesus, with the obedience of faith, infinite glory forever and ever to the only wise God results. So I would just say, as we begin to close here, we really need this concluding doxology, don't we? We really, really need this. This beautiful string of praiseworthy truths which focuses on us on giving all the glory to God. God is strong enough to save us. He makes us believers. He keeps us believers to the end. You know what you should do this afternoon? Take some time and read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Read some passages that just rehearse and summarize the gospel. Read Romans 3, 21 to 24. Read Titus 3, verses 5 and 6. It's, a, it's according to the gospel. God does it by the power he has to save through the gospel. So just rehearse the gospel in your heart, letting it recalibrate your soul to what matters. Maybe you're off track. Maybe you're thinking about all sorts of other things. Let the gospel recalibrate you to what really matters. We preach Christ from all of Scripture to all the nations. So proclaim the gospel in your heart, in your home, and to people in every place that God puts you. Thank God for providing and preserving his written word and making the gospel so clear. You know what there's a hint of here in this closing note of praise? Of giving thanks to God for the letter to the Romans. I think that might be the most appropriate way to apply this doxology for us today. You, you, you follow a study of Romans with praise to God for this letter that's such a clear reminder of the gospel. The preaching of Christ brings people to the beings of faith. Glorify God by, by living wholeheartedly for him today in light of eternity. Discipline your mind and your life to give all the glory to God by being about God's business. John Stott said, only a constantly fresh vision of Christ and of his commission can rescue us from idleness and keep our priorities correctly adjusted. Above all, give glory to God. Think about it. God chose to mend the broken world through Jesus Christ. No one else could have thought of such a plan of rescuing and remaking the world like this. No one could have invented salvation's plan, bringing it at infinite cost to the undeserving but God. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. If you follow Jesus Christ in obedience to faith, you will glorify God. It's the greatest thing you can do. It's the greatest cause you can be a part of. The final words of Romans glorifies God because salvation is all of grace. It has to be all for his glory. We've got Thanksgiving this week. I don't know if you know this, but Thanksgiving became an American federal holiday in 1863 during the Civil War. President Abraham Lincoln, he said this, I proclaim a national day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heavens. It is common to give thanks to God before a meal. It is also common to thank a chef after a meal. I want you to think of Romans as a really amazing meal for our souls. And I want you to think of this doxology at the end as an appropriately, appropriate way of thanking and praising and glorifying God who provided it. I, I want you to, to aim more deeply to ascribe all glory to God. 
It's the goal of the universe. It's, it's the destiny of creation. It's the highest calling of all Christians because God arranged history to reveal his glorious righteousness for his glory, honor, and praise. And God, all powerful to save by the gospel, all wise to reveal it in the written word, deserves all glory. So my prayer, my closing prayer is that, that Romans would move us to give every ounce of glory imaginable to God. Amen? Lord, thank you for arranging history to reveal your glorious righteousness. Thank you, Lord, that you are all-powerful to save by the gospel and all-wise to reveal it in your written word. You deserve all the glory. And may we, through all you have entrusted, give all glory to you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about grace, please visit our website at graceorange.org.